One of the most wicked kings of Judah was Ahaz. This king of Judah in the south, he subscribed to a lot of the rituals of Old Testament Judaism. He worshipped God, but the problem was he worshipped other gods as well. He even worshipped the god Molech, which included sacrificing his own son to the fire. Talk about wicked. Ahaz was also the king who literally invited the Assyrians into the backyard of Israel, which eventually led to the total exile of the ten northern tribes. But he didn't care. He was instead completely enamored by the Assyrians, their customs, their king. He even had his high priest make a copy of the altar the Assyrians used for worship, and then he replaced the altar in the temple of God with that altar. So he literally imported pagan worship into God's temple in Jerusalem in an effort to be like the nations. The people in Judah under Ahaz's reign weren't much better. They kept the ceremonies of God's law like the Sabbath and the sacrificial system. But they too were worshiping idols, literal statues of wood and stone. They subscribed wholesale to the wicked ways of the nations around them including greed, theft, extortion, injustice, sexual morality, and violence. And so it's not surprising that during this time, God raised up a great prophet to deal with the people, to call them to repent. And do you know who it was? It was Isaiah. God commissioned Isaiah to expose and rebuke the false religion of Judah. Now, don't get me wrong, Judah was still keeping many of the prescribed rituals of their faith, the the sacrificial system, the feast, the priesthood, the Sabbath. But from the king down to the people, their lives were characterized by immorality and injustice and evil and idolatry, both in heart and in deed. And therefore, to God, all of their religious practices were as good as idolatry. Their religion was but a shell devoid from true love for God and others. All they produced was a false worship. So God sent Isaiah to call the people to task. And we read some about that call from Isaiah chapter 1. I'll, I'll read for you. He says to the people in Isaiah 1.4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. So understand their chief sin was abandoning God. They just, in their hearts, in their lives, they turned away from the Lord, their God. And he was their God. But they didn't really love this God or serve this God, at least not from the heart. And so God sharply rebuked all of their religious deeds. He says in verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath The calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You read this, you might think, wait, I thought these were all like God's own prescribed practices. He told them to keep the Sabbath and all these things. Weren't these commanded by God himself? 
Well, yeah, they were, but when a person comes with unclean hands and a wicked heart, that they mean nothing to God. They are worthless. He hates their religious practices. That's not my words. That's, that's what God says next. Verse 14, he says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Wow, I just think that God won't even listen to their prayers. They lift up their hands. They think they're holy and religious, but they're blind to the fact that their hands are covered in blood, evoking the image that they're so full of injustice and and violence. And so God calls them to repent. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God's message to them is that they would repent and return to him and his ways. They had evil hearts evidenced by their evil deeds. And instead, they needed to be cleansed from within that they would manifest a new life with deeds of true righteousness. They needed a new heart that would display a true love for God and a true love for others. And this is the type of religious practice that forms true worship before God. It's obedience, which manifests itself in a love for God and a love for others, both of which stem from a heart that has received God's love and been made new by God's love first. This is still the definition of true worship before God. Many people have fallen into the same trap as ancient Judah, from the Pharisees of Christ's day to cultural Christians today. Christ's words often still apply, where he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. There is a type of vain, false worship, worthless worship, and it's still around. It's never been enough to go through the motions of religion to God. And today the forms and expressions of worship have changed. So we no longer worship God by going to a temple and sacrificing an animal. Instead, we attend church, read the Bible, sing praise songs, give an offering, fellowship, take communion. But there are still plenty of people who adhere to these outward forms of worship while their hearts are far from God. There's no real love for God and others in their hearts, which really betrays theirs as a false worship as well. And to God, it's as good as idolatry. This is still a real danger and a real problem of which we need to be warned. And James is going to do that for us this morning. You can open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're, we're finally at the final two verses of this first chapter, which we started into last time. And here James is telling us what true religion and true worship are all about. He's showing us the nature of saving faith, what it looks like, what it doesn't. We've already learned one huge element of living faith back in verse 22. 
He says, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's not enough to know the things of the Lord. The true believer will live them out. The one who hears all that God says and then doesn't live it out is is merely a hypocrite with false worship. But James isn't finished because there is such a thing as an incomplete obedience. You might say uh, obedience loopholes, as we learned last week. You see, some people, they, they obey the outward forms of worship. And so they look like they're doers of the word to the unsuspecting passerby. You know, they do some Christian things, and so they pass as Christians. But you see, some are not actually true doers of the word, despite this kind of charade they live. And so the religion is a sham, and and they're just deceived. God is not interested in mere outward obedience, but in wholehearted obedience and worship. We're talking an obedience that manifests a true love for God and for others, and which comes from not religious guilt, but an obedience that comes from a heart that has first received God's own love and has been made new by God's own love. That is the true worshiper. And such a person will be an effectual doer of the word, like James said in verse 25, and and he or she will be blessed. So to teach us this now in these final two verses, to, to kind of correct course and make sure we understand what the true doer of the word looks like, James offers for us two correctives, giving us the fuller picture of true obedience, that we might be wholehearted doers of the word. And it's kind of a mouthful, but it gets the point across. Two correctives, giving us the fuller picture of true obedience. And last time we, we focused all our attention on verse 26 and the first corrective, which is that obedience is not merely external. That was all last week. Obedience is not merely external. And this morning we're going to spend all of our time now in verse 27. That's it. Verse 27 with the second of these correctives, which is this number two, true obedience is not self-willed. True obedience is not self-willed. Now I'll explain what I mean by that as we go on, but first we need to run through and exposit verse 27. So look down at the final verse of James one, verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, in case you weren't here last week, you need to be reminded that this term for religion carries the idea of the ceremonial side of worship. In other words, the nuance of this term involves the practices of our worship to God, the things we do. Christianity is a heart religion. It is essentially based on a faith relationship with Christ. We know that. But even for Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New, God has still prescribed actions for us to carry out. He has defined how we are to express our heart of worship for him and to him. And so behind this concept of religion here in verse 27 is the practice of our faith, the living out of our faith. 
James is going to show us what true religion looks like, which is to say, these are practices which reveal a true heart of faith. These are true religious practices. He defines or describes this religion as pure and undefiled, which speaks of religious practice that is free from corruption and contamination. I know this is a little bit corny, but I can't help but picture, you know, like a factory sealed package of guacamole, like from Costco. And it has that perfect, pristine green color. But you know what happens the second you break the seal? The second you open that thing, it starts to brown. And it's like you're in a race to finish it before it spoils. Well, James is talking about religious practice in its, you know, factory sealed form. It's pristine. It's undefiled. This is, in God's eyes, this is the the, the purest form of religious practice. And look, verse 27, this is in God's sight. Notice he says this definition of religious practice in its purest form comes from God himself. And that's the only opinion that matters, right? Only when it's from God, it's not an opinion. It's just fact. It's just truth. God does not have opinions. He only knows truth and fact. Man has opinions. We learned that back in verse 26. If you remember, there is this person who thought of himself as religious. He thought himself a religious guy. In his own opinion, he was pretty devout. Like the Pharisees, he believed himself to be righteous. But the only evaluation of true religion that really matters comes from God. You don't get to define true worship or true religion or true obedience before God. God does. Only God does. So if you don't conform to his standards and his definition, then you're liable to, like the man in verse 26, deceive your own heart. All right. So in verse 27, James is going to tell us what religious practice looks like in its purest form. This, uh, this is going to be a chief expression of being a true doer of the word, according to God the Father himself. So what's he going to say? What, what is it then? What is the, the purest form of religious practice? Well, he says this. It is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So now we need to ask, obviously, why this? Why does he point to these? Why does he bring this up? Why does James use these as the key examples of pure religious practice before God? Well, let's keep explaining. But before we do, however, I'm going to pause and a little side note. I want to address a critical side issue. You need to understand that James is not here defining Christianity. He's simply giving an example of pure religious practice. Helping orphans and widows is an example of religious activity in its purest form. And I'm going to tell you why in in a few minutes, but you need to realize James is not here defining the essence of the faith as if, you know, helping orphans and widows makes you a Christian. In mercy ministry like this is the fruit of the Christian faith. It is not the root of the Christian faith. The root is always the gospel. I bring this up because over the past century, 
People have used verses like this out of context to redefine and rebrand Christianity to their own liking. On the one hand, they've completely de-emphasized the actual gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. The message of Christ's work is the real essence of the faith. But some have jettisoned that message. They've, they've carved the gospel out from the heart of Christianity. And all that's left behind is the ethics of Christianity. You know, things like visiting orphans and widows, seeking social justice, helping those in need. And these acts of mercy become the new center of the faith. And the product of this has been termed the social gospel. You heard of that before, the social gospel. Now, don't misunderstand. We're, we're not saying you shouldn't help people. Obviously, we must help those in need. But some have redefined all of Christianity as if this is the best we have to offer. The real good news of the gospel is dropped. And the best thing we have is mercy ministry. It's helping those in need, feeding the hungry, giving to the poor, enacting social justice. That becomes Christianity's main mission and message. And although these are all good things by themselves, the theology and the, the teaching of the social gospel movement are false and misleading and dangerous. The social gospel arose in the early 20th century as Christians were trying to deal with real social problems like poverty, crime, war, and injustice. These are all noble problems to try and tackle and solve. However, they did so by applying Christian ethics without the gospel. Their focus was not on trying to save people eternally, but on merely improving life on earth. And so instead of preaching the gospel to the poor and feeding them, the social gospel says, just feed them, just clothe them, just help them. That's it. It's all they really need. And they take verses like James 1.27 here, and they feel very justified. You see, we're doing true religion. We are visiting orphans and widows in their distress. We're just being like Jesus. We're feeding the hungry. We're healing the sick. We're helping the poor. That's what he did, right? And that reasoning is enough to satisfy the undiscerning. This thinking is alive and well today. In liberal churches, the gospel was vacated a long time ago. And so all that's left is usually some form of the social gospel. And you even get this teaching in some sectors of the Catholic church. I recently got myself a little taste of the social gospel not long ago. I attended a baccalaureate service for my nephew's graduation from a Catholic school. And I thought it was going to be like an award ceremony. And it was. But I didn't realize that the first hour was just a Catholic mass. Just right there in the gymnasium, they just held a full Catholic mass. I didn't participate, of course, but I sat through, I observed, and I just watched. The most interesting part came from the priest's homily. They don't preach a sermon. They have like a 15-minute homily, like, you know, life tips and stuff. But they had a special guest on this occasion. It was Father Greg Boyle. I guess he apparently is a big deal in L.A., He's a Jesuit priest. He's a founder of what's called Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. They provide jobs to ex-gang members and offer services like tattoo removal and uh, counseling to about 15,000 people off the streets every year. And we would say, that's great. 
That's great. It's a good thing to offer free tattoo removal to gang members, to give them jobs, to get them back in society. That, that's good work. That, that's a good thing to do. These are all worthy deeds. But Boyle, in his homily, made some eyebrow-raising comments. Now, the thing is, he used the term gospel a lot. He threw that term around, the gospel. But it became very clear that he associated the gospel with social services. To him, the good news of Jesus Christ had nothing to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. To make atonement for sins, to bear the wrath of God in our place, to offer us new and eternal life. There's zero mention of of any of that. Instead, the good news was equated with the offer of hope. This very general, generic, new agey, just idea of hope. And that hope could take any expression like tattoo removal or a job. And so Boyle envisioned Homeboy Industries as a gospel ministry. They're bringing the gospel to people, not by preaching Jesus, there's, there's actually none of that, but by giving them help and offering them hope. So you see, look, it would be one thing if they just merely helped people. We have obviously no problem with that. But by equating that with the gospel, they have created another gospel, a false gospel. And that's the problem here. The gospel to them is no longer about saving souls. In fact, Boyle said he used to try and save gang members, but then he realized saving people was for the Coast Guard. That's his quote. And said he realized they were saving him. And he said this several times. He said, you know, you don't go to the margins of society to rescue people, but to find rescue. You don't go to save people, but to be saved. It's very new agey. Basically, man's real problem is poverty and inequality. And therefore, our real mission is just give them food, money, jobs, justice. That's it. This is the social gospel. And it's so dangerous because it's built on some half-truths. Look, yes, Christianity does advocate helping those in need, feeding the hungry and so forth. Uh, Absolutely. But that's not the gospel. That's a, a fruit of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. And that's not our primary mission. Did Jesus help the needy? Well, yes, of course. But is that all he did for them? If that's all Jesus did for people, feed the hungry, heal the sick, help the poor, then he would be a grand failure. That's because everyone he fed got hungry again. Everyone he, he healed, well, they got sick again. And then they all died. And if that's all Jesus did for them, then they all would have just gone to hell forever. And what good is that? What good is making someone's life on earth a little bit better if they're still going to perish away from God forever? It's kind of like you're missing the main point here. But of course, this was not the mission of Jesus. He showed real mercy to the needy and compassion, but it was always a means to an end. He fed the hungry, but also that they might see he was the bread of life. He healed the sick, of course, but but also that they might see he could heal their spirit as well, and that they need him to do that. Jesus came not just to marginally increase life on earth for people, but to die in their place and pay for their sins on the cross, which is their eternal problem. That's the bigger of the problems. And he came to solve that problem, that they might have a new life 
in heaven. Jesus was way more interested in eternity, which is why he never once called for social or political change. Even though living in the most wicked society, he was not an activist. Instead, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So he very little interest in this world. Christ's mission was not to try and patch this world up and marginally increase life on earth, but to bring about a new world, a new kingdom, and a new people to populate it. That was his mission. So don't lose sight of the true mission and message of Jesus, which is the mission and message of his church. The essence of our faith is the gospel. The church should always be concerned about social justice. Absolutely. We, we must help the poor and the needy like we're going to learn about. But like I said before, that is the fruit of our faith. It is not the root of our faith. The root is always the gospel, what Christ did for us. And so our primary mission is to preach the gospel. That people might inherit a kingdom where there is no more poverty or sickness or suffering or death. And that's our real hope. So anyway, that was the tangent. This long but necessary tangent. But I hope that gives you some perspective on James one twenty seven here. At least now you, you should know what this verse doesn't mean. This verse forms no basis for some social gospel. James knows that the essence of Christianity is the new birth. Like he said back in verse 18. That's what makes you a Christian. But all that being said, now we need to come back and still answer though, what this verse is about, what he's saying. And why does he point to helping orphans and widows as the chief example of pure religious practice before God? So let's get back to this now. Now, first we'll we'll point out that He's obviously not being comprehensive here, as if this is the only expression of worship to God and obedience. James brings up orphans and widows not to be comprehensive, but to be representative. He chooses this as a representative practice of true religion before God. Because orphans and widows represent the least of these in society. And especially in the ancient world, Orphans and widows were the most needy members of society. They had no means of income and no one to care for them. There were no government programs like today we've got foster care for orphans and typically social security for widows. But back then, they don't have that. They were completely at the mercy of others just to eat and not die of starvation. And furthermore, being so helpless, orphans and widows were the most vulnerable members of society, the most prone to exploitation. Who's going to stop the wicked from enslaving that orphan? Who's going to come to their defense? Nobody. They're just purely vulnerable, defenseless. And so James calls us to visit these types of people in their distress. This word for visit doesn't just mean like showing up and saying hi. It, it, it speaks of actually supplying their needs. It recalls the time when God himself visited his people in their distress to deliver them. And likewise, we are to visit the needy in their distress to deliver them by meeting their basic needs. It's only good and right and just in God's eyes. 
And this is nothing new. Caring for the least of these has always been a primary concern for God's people. God calls us to care for the needy because in doing so, we reflect his own character. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, God himself is a father to the fatherless and the defender of the widow. That's him. Accordingly, God made caring for orphans and widows and the needy a major priority in his work. You know, for Old Testament Israel, did you know that a periodic portion of their tithe would go to caring for orphans, widows, and aliens? Also, they had a form of welfare where, uh, where during the harvest, they were commanded just leave behind some parts of the field for orphans and widows to come and, and gather and feed themselves. The New Testament shows the same priority on helping the needy. In Acts chapter 6, the first big issue of the early church was how to care for and feed all these widows. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives instructions for the church to care for widows indeed who were destitute, which meant that they had no family left to care for them. And in such a case, the church was to be her family and to care for her needs financially, physically, just to be her new family. And so what James is telling us here in verse 27 is, is nothing new. This has always been a high priority among God's people to care for those in need. But this being the case, we, we still haven't answered why James brings this up. Why doesn't he say pure and undefiled religion is to read your Bible or to sing praise songs or you know, to give an offering? Those are all genuine expressions of worship to God. But the reason James brings up caring for orphans and widows as the purest practice of religion is because it, it's the essence of showing what? Love. It's the essence of showing love for others, this practice. We're talking about a selfless, sacrificial love that gets nothing back in return. Remember, the essence of all of God's commands can be summed up with just two points. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when you visit orphans and widows in, the, in their distress, you are fulfilling God's will, God's commands in their purest form. You are loving your neighbor as yourself. When you care for orphans as if they were your children, or when you help a widow as if she were your own mother, you're showing an earnest, genuine love for others that fulfills the, the whole point of God's law and his commands and his will. And that's why James brings this up. This is an essential measure or mark of true faith and true obedience, showing love to the least of these. And again, it's only a heart that has received God's own love and has been transformed by God's love, will in turn really selflessly love others. On the flip side, though, if you go through all the externals of religion, and maybe you keep the commands that suit your lifestyle, but you fail to show this kind of love to others in need, well, you would be revealing a, a false faith, a dead faith. James would say that is not true religion. You know, I said earlier that true obedience is not self-willed. You know, the second point, it's not self-willed. 
What it meant is that some people only obey God on their own terms. They're happy to be doers of the word. Now, so long as it benefits them or so long as they get something out of it or so long as it doesn't, you know, impact their lifestyle or maybe some of their sins that they just really enjoy. Such people, however, still ultimately live for themselves and serve themselves. And they just have a way of showing their true colors when they fail to love others because there's nothing in it for them. You can think again of the Pharisees. You remember the time when Jesus rebuked them because they were known for vowing all of their money to the service of God just so that they would not have to financially care for their aging parents. It's like today, if you put all your money in like a, a retirement account that can't be touched and your parents are like starving, you're like, sorry, my money is like, it's, I can't touch it anymore. Can't help you. They did this. They vowed their money to God, like can't help you anymore while their parents were aging and, and in need. And no matter how religious a person appears, something like that just shows a heart that just still living for self. It's plain and simple. And such a self willed heart invalidates all other religious deeds that they mean nothing to God. When you have a heart like that, it's worthless. And James is getting at the necessity of a heart of love for others that shows itself even when there's nothing to gain. But those who participate in the rituals of religion without this love are simply deceived. Theirs is a false worship. Remember this sobering verse. You'll know it, but you probably haven't thought about it in a while. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where Paul says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So look, true love for others, which is epitomized by caring for orphans and widows, It's the mark of true obedience and true worship to God. That's why James brings this up. This is what the true doer of the word looks like. John makes the exact same point in 1 John. Listen to 1 John 3, 14 through 19. Just listen along, 1 John 3, 14. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, Christ. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. You see, we're not saved by loving others or caring for the needy. That doesn't make you right with God. However, those who have received this love of Christ, the one who came in and laid down his life for us to to show us a saving love, a transforming love, 
those who've been given a new heart, they've been brought into the light by his love. Well, you know what they're going to do? They're going to love others because of what has been done to them. And such a person having the world's goods and seeing others in need, they're not simply going to say, well, you know, be warm and filled. Hopefully someone will help you out. He or she will act on the love they have within them and they will prove their faith is real. And such a person will gain something. They will gain the assurance of their salvation. That's what John is saying. Also, let, let me read for you 1 John 4, 8 and 10, 11 and 19. In 1 John 4, 8, he says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He says in verse 10, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That kind of says it all right there. We love because he first loved us. This is why this selfless love is such a big test of true faith and worship. It's only people who recognize how much God showed them mercy and how, how much God delivered them from their spiritual distress who in turn do the same for others. Only those who really know the self-giving love of Jesus through his death on the cross will in turn love others. Not because they're trying to earn salvation, but to express the salvation they've already received and the heart of love they've received as well. This is true religious practice in its purest form before God, a love for others. And the same goes now for the end of verse 27. Back in James 1, keeping oneself unstained by the world. This final portion, we can explain much quicker now that you know where James is going with all this. So we might ask to finish, you know, why does James add this, this last part here to his picture of true religion, keeping oneself unstained by the world. Well, to make it simple at this point, you might say visiting orphans and widows is the thermometer of your love for others and keeping yourself unstained by the world. That's your thermometer of loving God, loving God, loving others. It goes back to the summary of the law to love God, to love others. And keeping yourself unstained by the world, what James is getting at, now, this now is a primary expression of your love for God. Your love for God. Now, I'll briefly explain. Unstained means literally without spot or blemish. It means you've not been stained by the ways of the world. The character, values, and desires of the world have not implanted themselves in your heart. And the world here, it doesn't refer to the planet. It refers to the evil world system that is ruled by Satan and opposes God. And such a world and its sinful ways are completely opposed to God and his ways. So it's only natural and right for a true believer and a true worshiper to keep himself you know, unstained, uninfluenced, undirected by such a world. So it's like James says later in James 4, 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
See, this world hates God and his ways. So if you have a supposed believer and they're just in love with the world and its ways, how is that not the same as them basically hating God and his ways? James says, no difference. The issue here is spiritual adultery. Kind of like King Ahaz, remember? You can't say you really have a heart of love for God when you're so in love with the world and its wicked ways. You don't. You know, the primary command in all of God's words, that, that his word, the number one command is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God wants and demands you, all of you, your heart. He wants undivided and unadulterated love. That's the essence of worship. And there's no room for two masters in your heart. There's no room for a second love in your heart, especially when it's for a world that so hates God. So keep yourself unstained by the world. And what do you know? Once again, John says the exact same thing in 1 John. Now chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. That's what this is about. And that's what James is getting at. Some people seek to be religious and demonstrate a form of self-willed obedience on their own terms, but they retain a thorough worldliness. More than a few live lives that are completely indistinguishable from the world, except for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. And James would say that is false religion. Especially today when the world seems to be doubling down in its opposition to God and its ways, there, there's just no room for compromise in a true believer when it comes to this love for the world. You know, we mentioned the social gospel earlier, and there's a great irony here when it comes to this point. Like I said, such people love to use a verse like James 1.27 and, and vindicate themselves as if they are the, the real, authentic Christians because they're helping the poor and the needy. But what's ironic is they always seem to ignore the last part of verse 27. You know, the whole keeping oneself unstained by the world part. But isn't that a part of the picture of true religion too? But typically such social gospel proponents hold the exact same wicked and warped values as the world. For example, they they talk about helping orphans, but then they passionately defend abortion. That's called being stained by the world. You know, as a bizarre and amusing example, I mentioned how I had listened to that priest, Greg Boyle, speak and give his little homily. What I didn't mention was that his homily was riddled with profanity. True. Not making it up. I, I did several double takes while I was sitting there listening. I'm like, did he just say that? And did I just, did I just hear that? And then it happened again, and I looked around. No one was, like, confused. I'm like, am I crazy? Did I just hear that? And he wasn't dropping, like, the F word, but several words that would get bleeped from the radio. And I get it. He works with gang members, and I guess this gives him, like, a form of street cred. 
But where does keeping oneself unstained by the world fit into this equation? I mean, you can't pick and choose when and where you obey God, especially for you know, a holy man, a priest, right? Look, we all fall short in many ways, but the one who loves God with a new heart is just not going to tolerate much of the ways of the world in his life for very long. He should see by now how this all comes back to the heart. And what do we say? That true religion or true obedience before God is one that manifests a love for God and a love for others, both of which stem from a heart that has received and been transformed by the love of God in Christ. This love will express itself not in mere outward religiosity, but in deeds of true selflessness. This is the picture of the doer of the word. And so the takeaway here, it's the same as last week. It's a call to examine yourself. Does this reflect your life and your heart? You here who have the world's goods. Do you make up a habit of passing by those in need and saying, you know, be warm and filled, but doing nothing to help? Or maybe you hear of a sister in the church who's struggling to get by, can't even pay the bills. Do you, do you, do you feel your heart just closing against such a need, trying to find ways to, to not help, excuses to give, or do you have a heart for others that you are ready and willing and happy to act to show love to those in distress? The same love God showed you when you were in distress. And also, is your life unstained by the world? And granted, we, we live in the world, so it's hard not to get splashed by their waves every now and then. But it's one thing to be in the boat of Christ, occasionally splashed by the world. It's another to be swimming in the water. And so do you have a heart that reflects a love for God and his ways where you're just striving against the world and its ways because you, you want to be unstained. You want a pure love for God. Examine yourself and grow. We all fall short of God's perfect standard of righteousness, of course. But maybe you're here and you, you find you don't, you don't even have this type of a new heart. You don't, you don't have this love for God or others in your life. And if that's you, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go back and heed the words of Isaiah 1 and repent. You need to be cleansed from your wicked ways and you need to be given a, a new heart that you might be able to worship God from the heart and obey him from the heart. But such a new heart only comes from one source. It's just like God said to Isaiah, the next verse we, we didn't read in Isaiah 118, where he says, after calling them to task, he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool. You see, God offers complete cleansing in Christ Jesus, as well as total reconciliation. And so you who are far off, you can be made new and brought near. God can give you the new heart you need to worship him and to obey him. But you must go to Christ in faith, confess your sins, seek his mercy, bow the knee and be saved. And then as you do so, you, as, you, as you truly receive the unfathomable love of God in Christ for you, you're going to discover a profound new love springing up within you, a love for others you didn't have before, a love for God 
you didn't have before. And you're going to find yourself caring for the orphan and the widow and keeping yourself unstained from the world. Not because these are good religious things to do, but because now you want to. Your heart is just overflowing with the love of God that you received and it's just going to spill out. Make sure this is you. This is the picture of the true doer of the word. The one who is blessed. Make sure this is you. In this, you will be blessed and the world will see the real type of true religion that Jesus left behind. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for the, the word this morning. Let it convict us in our own hearts, to to serve you, to love you, and to love others, that we would express the the new heart you've given us. We, in our our fallenness, we're all selfish. It's just in our our essence uh, after the fall. We love ourselves, not others, not you. And if any are still in that place, Lord, give them a new heart through repentance, through faith in Christ, that they might know a, a new love. And Lord, for us who have received such a new heart in Christ, May we, may we feed it. May we foster it. May we keep ourselves unstained from the world that it would not dampen this love we have. But may it come out. May we be overflowing with, with the love of Christ that we just are pleased to show you love and others in so many ways. May we just be a people marked by love. And as we are, a true love, a gospel love, that Christ said, by this, the world would come to know that, that you sent him. This is essential to our witness. It's essential to our religion, and it's essential to our worship. So may we be found with with hearts of real worship for you, Lord, that, that expresses itself daily in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.